Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing will spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, and the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water where waters do not fail, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and, a whole, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and he will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. We're taking a few Sundays here to look at uh, the topic of biblical justice. We started with God two weeks ago, that justice is part of his nature. And then last week we went to a psalm of praise to God for his doing justly. And now here in Isaiah 58 is a confrontation from the prophet Isaiah, from God through the prophet Isaiah, but not just a confrontation, it has uh, blessings for the heeding of the confrontation, for taking the correction, the blessings that follow. And then next Sunday, we're going to look at a scene. I chose Isaiah 58 uh, purposefully because of how it will dovetail with a scene from Jesus' ministry, which we'll look at next week in the Gospel of Luke. We'll see him doing justly on a Sabbath Note how this confrontation in verses 13 and 14 ends with reference to the Sabbath. And Jesus will give a flawless obedience to what God, through Isaiah, called for right here in Isaiah 58 next week in Luke. 
The people of God, the reason this confrontation comes about from the prophet is the people of God were neglecting to do justly and refusing to do justly. That's our two headings for Isaiah 58 today. And I think we have a continuum to put up on the screen uh, in front of you. We're going to look at this from the vantage point of neglecting to do justly and refusing to do justly. And I've given you a continuum here so that you can see under neglecting to do justly, we're basically talking about things that move from unconcern to apathy. And when we talk about refusing to do justly, we're talking about straight out denial uh, all the way over to exploitation. So we'll, we'll keep that slide up there so you can see when we're talking about neglect and refusal, it runs this kind of continuum. Remember that doing justly, what we've been talking about the last couple of Sundays, when we talk about biblical justice, talking about it, we're talking about what promotes human flourishing and what promotes human reconciliation, both to God and with one another, and human reconciliation and flourishing will encompass all races and classes. But when we boil down this confrontation in Isaiah 58 from God through the prophet to his people, it fits under two headings, and that's the two headings. The people were neglecting to do justly, and the people were refusing to do justly. That's the message. And both realities are problematic. Both realities are sinful. He says in verse 1 through Isaiah, cry aloud, don't hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. In other words, everything that's on the continuum, this is all sin. But it's not the same kind of reality. Neglect is not the same kind of reality as refusal. But God handles both in this particular chapter. So first, we'll talk about neglecting to do justly, and then we'll move to refusal, and that will be the message. To neglect to do justly is a sin of omission, and sins of omission are harder to point out. They're sins of omission, and they're sins of commission. Uh, If I commit a sin that I know is sinful and I feel conviction of it, that's a sin of commission. A sin of omission is something God may say, you know, that's sin. You don't see it as sin. You're neglectful of this, but nevertheless, that's sin. And so when we talk about neglecting to do sin, we're talking about sins of omission. And sins of omission are difficult in that they're harder to point out. They're harder to see. We don't often see them. That's why they're called sins of omission. It's something we're leaving out, and we may not even be that aware of. We may not be tuned into it, dialed into it. But God, through Isaiah, points this out when he addresses the fasting here. As Christopher read the passage to us, it begins with this confrontation of the fasting. Notice it here in chapter 58. As you're looking at the chapter, you see the people were keeping up with religious rituals and routines, but at the same time, they were okay, even though they were doing all these things they were supposed to do at the appointed feasts and festival times and the fasting that was uh, woven into the, the culture of the nation, and yet, even though they were doing these things, they were okay with a status quo in their society that did not promote doing justly, and God confronts them for this. We get mention of oppression. Look at verses 3 and also in verse 6. Verse 3, why have we fasted? You see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? 
Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. You look for things repeated, and so oppression is repeated in verse 6. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. And here we think of Jesus saying, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He, used, he humbled himself as a way of using his power for our flourishing and to reconcile us to God. But look at, at this word oppression, verses 3 and verse 6. We saw the word last week in Psalm 146, verse 7, didn't we? Where in Psalm 146, the passage we read last week, where God says uh, that he executes justice for the oppressed. Even earlier in, in our uh, reading here in the service, Psalm 106, again with the, the reference to oppressed, this, this shows up all through the scripture, the oppressed. It's a real biblical category of people. But to say oppression, here's where this sermon will be controversial, to say that oppression includes sins of omission is a controversial thing to say. The whole idea when we talk about social justice, and I've been telling you that we would, we'd, we'd get to, to some of these uh, points, the whole idea of wokeness, so-called, you've heard people talk about the woke, the whole idea of that is that they are awakened, they believe they see, and what they believe they see is they see sins of omission, like white privilege, for instance, you've probably heard that terminology. Um, I remember when I first heard the term white privilege a few years ago, it irritated me, made me mad. It was being used in the context I first encountered it. It was being used by a black friend who I knew went to better schools than I did. He had been to uh, suburban schools. I grew up in, uh, in rural Alabama and, and didn't go to very good schools. Uh, he was uh, growing up around affluence where he grew up. I grew up around poor whites. Uh, the people who sat right behind us uh, in, in the church, uh, the man was illiterate. He was a farmer. He could not read. His wife had to read documents for him. His son went to school with me. Uh, I, worked with, I lived with people uh, in our church who uh, worked in the mobile home factories and lived in the mobile homes they built. My best friend in the church lived in a mobile home down from the from the church. That, I thought of that, you know, when I heard white privilege, oh, white privilege, not the people I came from. That, and I, I thought of a white friend who went to a predominantly black school and was bullied by black students there because he was different. That, and, and I thought of the great John Perkins, whose hand I've had the honor of shaking, his autobiography, A Quiet Revolution. Uh, where Perkins says if the situation was reversed and it was uh, blacks in the majority and the black man had the advantage, he'd be just as bad to whites as whites have been to him. Perkins said race relations are a spiritual problem. Black and white both need to be born again. And he's given his life to, to, to bringing that message. So white privilege, when I first heard it a few years ago, it seemed like way too blanket a statement to me. It seemed... Uh, inflammatory and I took offense I reacted to it before I ever reflected on what my friend might mean as a lot of us tend to do we tend to react before we reflect when I reflected on it when I prayed through it when I discussed it with friends particularly black friends who came from distressed neighborhoods 
who experience things with store clerks and police that I never have and carry social anxieties I do not have. I could see that what was being called white privilege, and I still think the term is inflammatory. I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a good term to use for, for wisdom's sake. Nevertheless, I could see what my friends of color meant by it is that there's a comfort majority white culture have with the status quo of minorities, like too many failing schools in minority neighborhoods. doesn't affect us. Or the history of violence against African Americans and their leaders. That's history, we say. That's behind us. Not for them. One of my best friends uh, pastors a large church in Minneapolis. And you know what went on there this summer? And uh, we were Zooming recently to catch up, and I asked him about the events of the summer. And uh, he had a front row seat to it. And I said, you know, wh what was it like in your church dealing with, uh, with folks who were watching their city in turmoil and, and all that was going on? And he said, you know, it's interesting. He said, we had a lot of people mobilize and loved Minneapolis well. And, and we did some things to, to get people in, in places where the needs were acute. And, and we mobilized with, with people we knew uh, in different parts of the community. And he said, so a lot of good things happened, but he said, you know, it's interesting. More than once I've had the discussion with some in my church who will say to me, hey, you know, there's no evidence that Officer Chauvin was a racist and therefore killed George Floyd out of some hatred of black people. So why do black people get so up in arms about this? And Matthew, uh, my friend, wasn't being asked this really so much as he was being told this. And in response, he tried to explain that black and brown bodies have historically had reason to fear authorities, that this is a deep-seated trauma in black communities. But his responding with that, hey, here's why a lot of your black neighbors are really upset about this. He said people in his church got upset with him. Like he was trying to make them feel guilty for something they don't feel guilty of. To use his Minnesota analogy, it's hard sledding. <laughs> Uh, when you try to put a spotlight on sins of omission. But this is what happens in Isaiah 58. Looking at it, the people Isaiah preached to were giving God their fasting and thinking that's sufficient. But their workers, notice verse 3 again, the workers whom they were making money off of, they were experiencing insufficiency and God actually calls that oppression. If you want a New Testament parallel, you can read the letter uh, from James, James chapter 2. He uses the word oppression there in the way that poor people were being uh, not favorably treated in, in churches. They were being told, you know, here's a place on the floor you can sit and, and we're reserving the, the, the best seats for those with means who can support the church. In Isaiah 58... Maybe it was that the wages weren't enough. Maybe that's the issue with the workers. Maybe it was that the working conditions were bad. My own father is with the Lord now. His career was spent with the Gap, Banana Republic Division. Uh, he went all over the world where they make the clothes. And, and my dad's proudest career achievement was finding in the UAE uh, a, a Sikh man, happened to be a, a Sikh, the, the Indian guys with the turbans, uh, who had all these Pakistani workers, and he was mistreating them. Their living conditions were horrible. And my dad went in and basically said, you want to do business with the Gap? 
Uh, he, he was told, uh, it's, it's kind of funny, they were, they were briefed before they went to these uh, Middle Eastern countries that titles are real important. And so dad had on his, on his uh, business card, owner, <laughs> the gap, because he was a shareholder. So it was technically true. It's like Forrest Gump. Mama says, little white lie, I'd never heard anybody. So he put that card down for this guy because and he, and he, the guy goes, well, who are you? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm an owner of the gap. That's who I am. And you will improve the conditions for these Pakistanis. And that happened. And dad got to know that there were some Christians among those Pakistanis. They reached out. And my dad for, for years would email with what he called his Pakistani sons in the Lord. What's, what's, what made what's in verse 3 here neglect as omission on the part of the people in charge was that they were more focused on their own comfort. That was priority one. Their personal peace and affluence. Remember Francis Schaeffer? Some of you remember Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist from the from the 70s, he used to say that was the problem with the Western church. If anything was going to kill the Western church, it was our own personal peace and affluence. Uh, the folks being confronted in Isaiah 58 had done their bit for God. And they'd done their bit for the worker and providing him a job. And what else does he want? But life was really about the confrontation. The sin of omission is life is really about protecting and providing for your own. Now, some of you think I'm giving a Marxist take on Isaiah 58. This is a little elephant in the room here. There's a lot of accusations of that today against Bible, evangelical Bible teachers and preachers of cultural Marxism. In the last 18 months, three times I've been called I'm a cultural Marxist. Told I was that. There is insistence that this is widespread. This is the great threat. There's a lot of insistence without any evidence, frankly. But Marxism, in essence, if we're really talking about Marxism, Marxism says there are two kinds of people in the world. There's the oppressor and the oppressed. And it instigates class warfare wherever it takes over a culture. Cultural Marxism, what I think people mean by that and why they're wary of it, is that everything now feels like it's always about race and gender and personal identity, and we get tired of that. And in predominantly white conservative spaces like our own here, we'll say, well, this, just, this is just perpetuating victimhood and cultures of resentment. We object to the kind of religious fervor that you find now around anti-racism. Indeed, for many people, anti-racism has essentially become a religion. But in such a space as ours, if I say, from this pulpit, that uh, systemic racism is true. And if I say it's biblical teaching that brought me to that conclusion, it's not critical race theory from the university, it's Romans in the New Testament taught me that sin is not just personal but also a power at work in the world and thereby infects systems and structures people build. That when we're talking about systemic sin, the closest parallel is generational sin that we've got in the Old Testament. Some nevertheless accuse me and others of cultural Marxism, that we're stirring up class envy or that we must believe white people are irreparably racist. I don't believe that. But still I hear, well, you're siding with the rioters and, and the people who are out on the streets demanding justice even as they commit criminal acts against business owners serving their own communities. I'm not for that. Rioting and looting is just as broken as whatever causes it. 
But here's the reality. The biblical reality of evil is that evil is far more complex than just the obvious wrong choices of individuals. It gets into systems too. Why in the world would that be controversial for people who understand the New Testament? So what we're actually trying to do, my brothers and I who preach and teach in evangelical churches who are facing the scrutiny and really the scorn, what we're trying to do as faithful gospel preachers is simply say there are social consequences from sins of omission. Now people may be pointing that out to us in ways that make us feel like they're trying to rub our faces in something, but there's such a thing as neglect of justice, omission of it, because I'm so focused on my own life and my own loved ones and others who are just like me, and even so focused on my walk with God that my faith is all piety and religious performance and moralism. Remember Jesus' words to the most religious people of his time, Matthew 23, where he says, You say, I fast, and I give a tenth of all I get. And Jesus says, that's great. You should be doing that. And yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and righteousness and faithfulness. The confrontation in Isaiah 58 is this. If you want it in a sentence, you've taken my name, but you're basically all about you. And God, in essence, says, explain that back to me. Tell me how that works out for my people. You've taken my name, but you're basically all about you. Look at it, verses uh, 3 and 4. Why have we fasted? Verse 3, and you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves? You take no knowledge of it. Hey, Lord, we're your folks. And he says, well, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. He says, in other words, when you're not seeking your own pleasure, you're causing somebody else pain. Look at verse 4, that first line, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight. Does that not sound like today? The attention many of you are giving to cultural quarrels, the amount of anxiety you've generated in yourself and others over race and gender and identity issues and theories that somebody has convinced you are seeping into the church, so much Marxism everywhere, you think you have to fight your pastor? How did suspicion displace trust? Defensiveness has replaced thoughtfulness. Tribalism has fractured Christian fellowship so that it's really not built around anymore what we have in common in Christ. It's whether you're my political compatriot or not. That's backwards. And it stands under God's judgment. God says here to his people through his prophet, if you're not seeking your own pleasure, you're causing somebody else pain. Why are you doing that? He's saying. Why don't you find some people in real pain and humble yourself enough to serve them? Not as their hero. Don't be the great white hope. We're here to save your black neighborhood. That's patronizing. You'd feel humiliated by that too if it was you. Humbling yourself. You know what true gospel-inspired humility means? It means I stop connecting everything to me. And I seek the welfare of others in whole person ways. Humility involves the right use of power. We've really underthought this in our evangelical space here. 
ask God to show you what you're neglecting, would you? Ask God to show you who you're omitting. You know, he's on record, he's going to show us this sooner or later. That God confronts neglect means our unconcern or our apathy, wherever we are on that continuum. That means it, it, it doesn't... It isn't a worthwhile excuse with God. I quoted Matthew 23 a few minutes ago. Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Lord, when when did we see you in need? I mean, if we'd have known that was you that was hungry and naked and in prison, well, if it was you, I mean, we would have helped you. And Jesus says, how can you say that when you've been in a Bible-teaching, gospel-centered church like this one? How could you miss that I identify with those ignored and overlooked on the margins? Even a few chapters before this one, the more familiar part of Isaiah to us, Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was oppressed, used of Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And Paul wrote that Jesus, though rich, for your sake became poor. Who does God identify with when he looks at human beings and identifies? Sins of omission. They get confronted here. Likewise, the sins of commission. So that takes us to the refusing to do justly continuum that's also at work in the prophet's confrontation where you've got a continuum between denial and and exploitation. The people of God Isaiah confronted were going about their lives, going through their religious motions, expecting the blessing of God. I'm in a lot of Bible studies, so everything's cool with God and me, except God says, hey, it's not. Because it's not me you love. That's what God says in this confrontation. It's not me you love. What you love is that your life has worked out so well for you. That's what you love. It's not me you love. It's not me you serve. You serve yourselves. You use me as a means to success for you. Refusing to do justly is denying, just to put that part of the continuum in play, it's, it's denying the equitable distribution of punishment and protection. Benjamin Watson, lover of the Lord Jesus, he's an NFL alum now, played for the Saints most recently. He put it that way this week in a tweet wherein he responded to a man uh, whose Twitter handle is Reverend Raphael Warnock. He is running for Congress out of Georgia. He's a Savannah native where I have family. And Reverend Warnock tweeted that he would always fight for reproductive justice. That's what he said. That's how he put it, by which he meant abortion rights. He called it reproductive justice. Abortion rights, which is the single taker, biggest taker of black lives like his in existence. And Benjamin Watson, this former pro football player, called Reverend Warnock, running for Congress, out on this. This way, here was his tweet. This is Benjamin Watson's words, quote, Pastor, equal access to kill a son or daughter is not justice. Justice is the equitable distribution of punishment and protection. Justice is rooted in the dignity of every human endowed by the Creator. One cannot truly fight for justice while simultaneously denying it. Close quote. Beautifully and courageously and powerfully said. Abortion denies 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to human beings at their earliest and most vulnerable time of life. Abortion denies protection of actual persons by actually punishing them for existing, refusing their life. Benjamin Watson again. Justice is the equitable distribution of punishment and protection. Our pro-life advocacy cannot end there, though. As I was saying last week, we get accused of being more concerned for the person in utero than after they're born, and there's some fair critique in that. Having the right view on abortion doesn't mean you've obeyed what God says he wants from us concerning the plight of the orphan. God confronts his people in Isaiah 58. He confronts both the neglect to do justly and the refusing to do justly. Look at uh, on this uh, continuum of refusing. Verse 6, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke. Is it not, verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. In other words, here's the blessing. If you do justly, here's the blessing. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The Lord himself has your back. Then you shall call, verse 9, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. God knows us so well. Does that not sound like now? Look at it again, last line of verse 9. The pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. We're so concerned, so many of us, about having the right view and condemning the person who doesn't have the right view in our view. And maybe all the while you're actually refusing to do justly yourself. You don't answer to me for this. If you plot verse 7 on the refusing to do justly continuum, denial to exploitation, to deny the hungry, verse 7 mentions the hungry. Is, is, it not, is not justice to share your bread with the hungry, he says? To deny the hungry is to look away from them. To look away from their need. Verse, end of verse 7, uh, you, you hide yourself from your own flesh. To exploit them, what would be an example of exploiting them? Maybe it's to price the food that has better nutritional value out of their reach. Or to pay a pittance to those who break their backs harvesting it for us. The line about the naked in verse 7 here. Notice that when you see the naked to, to cover him. Exploiting the naked takes us to pornography and prostitution and the sex slavery that feeds both. God says, instead of refusing, refresh. Instead of neglecting, pay attention. And then he says, verse 10, if you pour yourself out for the hungry... And satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness. And your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually. And satisfy your desire in scorched places. And make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden. 
like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And again, that makes us think of Jesus. You think of the yoke in verse 6. You think of Jesus offering his gentle yoke. And you see the water reference in verse 11. And you anticipate the source of living water that he called himself. Who though he was rich became poor for our sakes. So that in him we would know the righteousness of God. Jesus himself knew hunger and thirst on his cross. He was naked there, humiliated, so we wouldn't have to be humiliated in the court of God, who's a perfect judge. Everything that has to do with, with justice comes into focus around the person of Jesus. Everything. Because you know what? On your best day, Verse 10, when you've poured yourself out for the hungry and you've satisfied the desire of the afflicted, you still haven't done it as well as him. It's good that we do, but that's not going to justify us before God. We have to have him do it for us. Jesus does not call conservatives and progressives to meet him in the middle. He calls you and me, wherever you plot yourself sociopolitically, he calls you and me to meet him in his concern for those most vulnerable around us. To recognize how in his life and ministry and even in his death, he identified with the most vulnerable. And yet within himself has a, has a victory to offer to them and to us who are vulnerable to the justice of God and our sin. He calls us. to reconcile ourselves to God, to respond to his gracious initiative, and then to meet him in his concern for the most vulnerable around us, those afflicted, those oppressed by way of sins of omission and commission, both our sins and others, and to show them, each and all, that there is justice for them in being reconciled to God, first and foremost, that's what we all need, and then in belonging to him and being so reconciled to God, we get to be instruments of reconciliation and flourishing to others. We get to be. It's not a, it's not a have to. It's a get to. We get to go with him to where the needs are and or we ask him to bring needs to us. And we watch him do marvelous things, which are also hard things but worth doing. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we're, we're confronted by a text like this. We see ourselves in the neglect and we even see ourselves in the refusal. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us in Jesus. We pray, Father, that we will be emissaries and ambassadors of that same reconciling kindness and flourishing peace that you have made with us, that we will imparted to others through works, through interests, through advocacy, through all the ways, Lord, that we can be a part in our time, our brief time on this world. We can be a part of doing justly as you not only call us to, but you demonstrated yourself. We thank you for that demonstration, for in that is our life and our peace with you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.